Good morning, everybody. Wonderful to be with you this morning. And a bit of short notice, but that's okay. These things happen. Uh, Very thankful for the prayers of the uh, Faith Baptist Church, for Sharon and I and the ministries we're involved in. Uh, Very, very quiet couple of years up until uh, uh, this year. We've had uh, three, four camps. And uh, we've had the blessing of seeing a number of folks saved, uh, camp ministries here in Victoria, in Queensland, New South Wales and in Western Australia. So the Lord's kept us busy as well as uh, ministries in churches as well. So it's a great blessing to be here with you today. If you take your Bible, please, and open to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel and chapter 11. 1 Samuel and chapter 11. It be appropriate for us being the Anzac Day weekend that we're going to be uh, going to war. But we're also going to go to a funeral. And of course war oftentimes involves a lot of funerals, sadly. We're very thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy uh, in this country, in our land, because of the sacrifice of Uh, brave men and women uh, who gave their lives that we might have a life and uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said that we ought to praise God for each of these men and women for the two lives that they had of course if you know Ronald Reagan or know anything of him he was always uh, coming out with what they call clangers or rip snorters as I call them and uh, they thought that he was just being confused again but he wasn't confused he said the two lives, the one they had and the one they would have had uh, had they come back from the battlefields. But uh, very thankful for uh, our freedom, for our liberty, for this land. And it's a mess. If this ain't a mess, it'll do until the one gets here. There'll be a bigger mess. But uh, we need a lot of prayer for our country. We need a lot of prayer for our leadership. Not just for leadership in our churches, but leadership in our, uh, our local communities, in our state, in our federal government. And uh, we'll all, well, most of us will get the opportunity to express our opinion. Uh, Not that it'll make much difference to some of the the carnival that seems to go on around the country at the moment. But praise God, at least we get to have a say. I mean, we're not living in North Korea, just felt like it sometimes, but we're we're not there yet. Uh, Okay, 1 Samuel and chapter 11, let me put my cheaters on. I'm going to ignore this thing in the front of me. He said, I'd be old cute anyway. Oh, where'd you get him from? Oh. All right. Let's stand together, shall we, for the reading of God's word this morning. And here in chapter 11, it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of all the people And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? 
And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and hoed them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they came unto the mess- and they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it unto the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so that on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered, so that two of them were not left together. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Then Samuel then said Samuel to the people, Come, and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word which is forever settled in heaven. Thank you for the uh, inspiration of thy word, for all scriptures given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we have a wonderful Saviour revealed here in the word of God. And yea, revealed in the lives of your people historically, even to this very hour. We're thankful for the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We're thankful for the life that was given, for the blood that was shed. And oh, Lord God, how we thank and praise you for the glorious resurrection of our Saviour from the dead. And because he lives, we have that sure promise that we shall live also. For he has said, I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of mine hand. Lord, we're thankful for our salvation and our Saviour. We're thankful for the liberty and the freedom we have to meet together this day, this place, for this time, to lift up our voices in songs of worship, to encourage one another in the Lord. We pray for your blessing upon the Word of God as it's ministered with the children this morning. We praise and thank you, Father, for the prayers of those who minister to us before the throne of grace. And we pray for those who are sick or unable to be here, that you would pour them out a blessing, encourage their heart. And Lord, that you would raise up those that are sick, those that are ailing, and strengthen them for your glory. Now, Father, bless our time as we meet together now around the word of God. We pray and ask in Christ's name, with thanksgiving. Amen. Please be seated.
you cast your eye back over chapter 10, toward the end of it, we had a national kerfuffle. The national kerfuffle came about because Israel wanted a king. They had a king, a king they couldn't see, a king they could worship, a king they could praise, a king who historically and even to the very hour had done wonderful things for them as a nation. The very existence of a nation came about through the power of God who brought them out of bondage in Israel, out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. God had worked mightily down through their generations to the very time that we are here uh, in the days of Saul and Samuel. It's an interesting time. It's the days of the judges. The book of Judges tells us on no less than two occasions that in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Doesn't say they did what was wrong, they did what was right. But everybody had his own little moral compass. Everybody set his own little boundaries as to what was good, what was bad, what was right, what was wrong. And that only added the confusion and now uh, in, in a, a, an act of almost idolatry, these people want to replicate the nations that surround them. The nations that torment them, the nations that go to war against them, that seem to be battling against them continually. And they said to old, old Samuel the prophet, make us a king. We want to look up on the hillside when we go out to war. We want to see our king sitting on his white horse or on his throne or whatever he's sitting on, or whatever king sit on. And we want to look up on the hillside. We want to see and that's going to inspire us to fight. Totally oblivious it would seem, or should we say arrogantly ignorant. That God was their king. They didn't need to see to know that he was at work. They didn't need a visual aid to know that he was God. That he ruled, that he reigned. Not just over Israel, but he ruled and reigned over all the earth. That all things were subject to him. That all power belonged to God. But they wanted a king. And so God, in his mercy and grace, gave them a king. He didn't just pick out any old dog's body. He didn't just grab, oh, you, you'll do. Oh, no, no, no. He chose amongst the men of Israel the very best that was available. Now, you may be aware that King Saul wasn't very kingly. In fact, King Saul, uh, this chapter here, chapter 11, is basically the height of his rule. For King Saul and for the people of Israel, this was about as good as it ever got for Saul. And he spirals out of control. We find him eventually dabbling in witchcraft and all kinds of necromancing and, stuff, and then dying out on a battlefield unprotected, unloved, unwanted, despised of the Philistines and rejected of God. God's chosen him another king. But this king, when he was first chosen, he wasn't chosen simply because he was taller than anyone else in all Israel from his shoulders upward, as the scripture says. We read earlier on of Saul, he was a very caring, a very sensible, a very hardworking, a very obedient son. We first meet him and he's out on a donkey hunt expedition with one of his father's servants. And they've been gone for some days and then finally says, we need to return and go home, lest our father, lest my father be worried. When was the last time you met a young man who cared whether his dad was worried? They're a very rare species to be so tender-hearted and compassionate, but that's what he wanted to do. And it's then that he meets Samuel on the way and he is anointed the king. And here, this man, uh, in chapter 10, they have a ceremony for the choosing the king. 
and the casting of the lots, and at the end of it all, Saul, the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, is chosen. But look at the last couple of verses here. It says in, uh, in verse 24, And Samuel said unto all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen. You better get a hold of that. Samuel said, I didn't pick this guy. This is God's choice. This is whom God has chosen. So we better make sure we understand that. It says, hath chosen that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and God saved the, and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. Well, hang on. We've just had a bit of a coronation here and the king goes home. Does that sound very royal to you? Kings go into palaces. No. In fact, in chapter 11, what is Saul doing? Oh, he's out ploughing the field. He's out turning up the sods and breaking down the clods and pulling out the weeds and maybe milking cows and goats and cats and almonds. Anyone here into almond milk? What's someone who's into almond milk to tell me how you milk an almond? You milk your own almonds? You'll have to give us a demo something. But anyway, it says Saul went to his home and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. Look at verse 27. But the children of Belial said, how shall this man save us? Ha! Look at him. Tall, young, hardworking. They despised him and brought him no presents. Now that really... I tell you, any time my birthday goes by and the presents don't arrive, we call off Christmas. <laughs> Cancel. There are no more events happening this year. You don't got birthdays. You aren't getting well cards. You aren't getting others. I miss birthday. Everybody. But, but look at it. He held his peace. We don't have a big patty. I'm the king. You've got to let me be king. No. He just went home. When about it? Now, here's a simple truth from the Word of God. Whenever God makes a choice, even though it's not popular with people, God will vindicate. If you've been on the receiving end of what we call the rough end of the pineapple, don't worry about it. If you are living in obedience to God in due course, God will prove your worth. God will vindicate his truth in your life as you live for him, as you obey him, as you walk with him. Even though it may be rejected of people, even though you may be slighted of your own family and your own friends, in due course, God will bring about a public acclamation of your approval. That's what we see happening here in chapter 11. It just so happens that this man, Nahash the Ammonite, comes and he turns the city of Jabesh Gilead, he turns it into a literal prison. The walls are really handy to keep the riffraff out. But when the riffraff are in great numbers and the water supply is cut off and the food supply is cut off, it's not long until your city becomes your prison and your prison becomes your death cell. Because as we wait for the time to pass and the hunger... And there are occasions in the Bible where we read of, of cities being besieged and cannibalism 
taking place. And we read of you know, people getting sick and all manner of disease. And with the spreading of the disease, there's more death, there's more dying, there's more sickness, and it gets worse and worse. And so these people said, you know, tell us what you want. We don't want a lot of trouble. You tell us what we are. I mean, this is common. This is almost like when you used to go to your neighbour to borrow a cup of sugar or a bottle of milk. Well, a little more extreme than that. These people go to war when they have a need. I mean, we've got a very masculine population over here, very male gender-oriented population here. We need some women. Oh, I see the city of Broadmeadows is full of women. And so the people from Frankston go to war with Broadmeadows for what? Just to bring the women home. We might have to bump a few people off along the way, but that's okay. As long as my son and, and my boys all get a bride, we'll all live happily ever after. And, of course, the women went on their way cheerfully because, you know, there are a bunch of goobers over here at Broadway. We're not marrying and then, guys. You know, maybe the guys down at Frankston. Anyway, so, but here they went to war with the demand and, and they said, well, tell us what you want. You, you want cattle? You, you want sheep? You want camels? You want horses. I mean, you know, kings ride on horses. I mean, you, you, food. You want our crops. I mean, we've only just harvested. You know, maybe the orchards have been loaded. And they say, you want fruit? What, what do you want? He says, I'll tell you what. I, I want the right eye. Wrong. Stop it. I want the right eye. <laughs> Got me there. <laughs> I feel like I'm being watched. <laughs> I want the right eye of every person. How do you feel about that? As a father, as a father or grandfather, even as a man, how do you feel about that? When you're going to take your wife and your children, your grandchildren, you're going to queue up at the gate and you're going to over this butcher, pluck out the right eye of every person out of the whole city, spare no one, old or young, from infants to elderly, everyone a right eye, scarred forever. This is no Fred Hollows Foundation, folks. There's no Panadol here. There's no aspirin. There's no surgical. This, this is vicious. Now, as I said, there's no king in Israel, and every man does that which is right in his own eyes, which probably is why when they said, give us seven days respite, and, and if there's no man come and help us, we, we'll come out here. You see, because everyone does that which is right in his own eyes, everyone's looking after number one. And do you really think somebody's going to come and rescue you? I mean, this man's very likely already, already taken over other cities. And yet one of the reasons why we see and probably want the eyeballs is a bit like Sennacherib. You can read about Sennacherib in the book of Isaiah and uh, elsewhere in Kings and Chronicles. But Sennacherib came and on his way there, archaeologists tell us they found records saying that when he took the city of Lachish on his way to take Jerusalem, which he never did, outside the city of Lachish, he stacked 70,000 heads. As he swept in from the east, down from the north, down into the land, along the way, every city, town and village, he butchered people and took wagon loads of heads to stack them outside the gate of the city of Lachish to intimidate people. Very effective way to sort of move the siege along. I mean, we don't want to have to, we don't want to be here for weeks. 
Let's just look, look, here's a pile of heads. Do you get the point? I mean, the Assyrians popularised a thing called skin flame. When the Assyrians and even the Babylonians, when they were uh, besieging a city, they would take prisoners from previous conquerings and they would stake them out in the middle of the night and they'd have competitions with the soldiers to see who could skin them alive the fastest. And the terror of it was there for everybody to see and to hear. And this all has a very, very uh, influential effect on you making decisions. And these people said, you give us seven days and if not, we're coming out. That's hard. But he let them go. And they sent messengers throughout all Israel and they came to Gibeah of Saul And when Saul comes and hears these people, they've lifted up their voice and they're wailing. They are wailing in sorrow. They are in great mourning. This this is such a a reproach upon their people. He says, what's going on? And they tell him. And then he sounds the trumpet. Now get this, 330,000 people came to, to do battle against one miserable tyrant to save one city why the emphasis you go back into the book of judges in chapter six seven eight and you find israel have had years enslaved under the amalekites and the midianites and the children of the east and they've been prisoners in their own land And finally, when God raised up Gideon to go to war against them, he sounded the trumpet, and how many came? 32,000. That's not bad. No, that's not good. God said, you've got too many people. Whoever's fearful, go home. 22,000 left early. Eventually, Gideon went to war with 300. After seven years of slavery, God's king, the man God anointed, the man God chose, see ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, 330,000. Wow. And so they sent messengers. It says here in verse 9, they said, Tomorrow by the time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. Oh. Praise God. There must be a Gideon. Someone's got it. Samuel. Samuel's called the people to arms. Who's coming? Who's coming? Saul's coming. Saul? Saul? Well, that miserable young buck, what's he going to do? Hide in the baggage house? Oh, I don't like Saul. I, 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 I think it was a bad... I think it was rigged. You know, some people had a genuine grievance because the Bible did say in the old prophets that the lawgiver, the ruler, would come out of Judah. And he's from the tribe of Benjamin. But he's not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's just an earthly king. They didn't want him. And they said, well, he's coming with 330,000 men. I like that guy. I've always, you know, others didn't like I've always liked him. I thought he had tremendous potential. I'm, on, I'm, a, Saul, I'm a Saul supporter from way back. And so we're told here they went to war. And Saul has suddenly become a military strategist. 
and he sets them in three companies. Maybe he uses the old German pincer movement to surround the host. Then he has this other group of 100,000 do the old British cordon wedge, driving up through the middle, and then as they go through the middle, they begin to break away into groups, beating down the enemy everywhere they go. In absolute confusion, there are not two people left standing together anywhere. What a victory. Wow. And then to celebrate, someone says, who is he? Who is he that said Saul can't be king? Let's have his guts for garters. Off with his head. We want blood. We've seen enough blood. No, no, more blood, more blood. And Saul said, Saul, not Samuel, Saul, there shall not a man be put to death this day because the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. That's kingly. That's godly. That's God honouring. That's not, hey, payday. That's not getting back. That's not getting even. That's not even getting even earth. That's leaving it to God. Point proven. Move on. And they did this for a city of people that were probably totally unknown to them. Every man's doing that which is right in his own eyes. Everybody's looking after number one. I live over here. I live over here. I live over here. I do not care where you live. I do not even care that you live. I live over here. And I'm looking after my wife, my son, my daughter, us four, no more. Amen. Let's eat. That's the attitude a lot of people have. Still have it today. Looking after number one. So it's a great victory. We come over here to chapter 31. We'll jump to the end of the book. And Saul and his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab and Melchishua, go to war with their father. And it's a losing battle with the Philistines in Mount Gilboa. And the scripture tells us here that Saul is wounded, calls for his sword bearer to fall upon him but he won't do it so Saul falls upon his own sword and verse 5 says and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead he fell likewise upon his own sword and died with him so Saul in verse 6 Saul died with his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men that same day together this is a terrible tragedy Jonathan David's best friend the crown prince in the eyes of many who would have been the heir to the throne had not God intervened and chosen David. But even Jonathan acknowledged that David would be king. It's there in the scripture. What a great man of God he was. Passionate for the things of God. Dead. All because of their father's foolishness. All because of their father's sinfulness, his wickedness. It says in verse 7, And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, and they on the other side of Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armour, and sent it into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols, 
and among the people. And they put his armour in the house of Ashtaroth, one of their pagan gods, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. According to First Chronicles in chapter 10, they put his head in the temple of Dagon, another one of their pagan deities. And not just the bodies, a body of Saul, but the bodies of his sons. They turned the city of Bethshan into this horrible, gory trophy case. So the dead, rotting bodies of the king and the three princes are hanging on the wall, being scavenged on, no doubt, by the wildlife. And the stench of it is somehow a sweet smell to the Philistines because their pagan gods have been victorious over the gods of Israel. It's a sad, sad scene. But look at verse 11. And, so when the, and when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So the report starts circulating. The battle's been fought, Israel have lost. Losing was one thing. The king is dead. Oh no. The king and his three sons are all dead. All of his army are virtually, they're all dead. Whatever is left, they're scattered. The Philistines now come. The people flee from their homes, vacate their villages and towns. The Philistines come and dwell in them. And then they put on this terrible display with the mutilating and the collection of the armour, mutilating of the bodies. And then word comes to Jabesh Gilead. Saul reigned 40 years. 40 years. 40 years from the time Saul saved an eye. You imagine the evenings when the men sat around their fires, talking like old men do. We, we old men, we like to talk. No, we, we go tigers, we like to talk. Go doggies. Woof, 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 woof. I went and saw it recently too. And they're sitting around and they're talking and there's one story that every father and grandfather and even great-grandfather likes to rehearse to their children and grandchildren. The day King Saul saved our city. They never forgot. Wow. 40 years. Do you realize what it says here? All the valiant men arose. Some of these men probably weren't even born when Saul saved Jabesh Gilead. And yet they feel this debt to him. They feel this bond with him, this, this love, this affection for him. That he, he's honoured. He's lifted up, he's extolled among the people of Jericho. Not idolatry wise, but with gratitude. Gratitude. Real thanksgiving. 
they had never forgotten what he had done for their people. 40 years. And they risked their lives. This band of men, these brave men, these gallant men, risked their own lives to go into the very hub of the enemy territory and steal their trophies and bring home the king and his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchizedek, bring them home and burn them and bury them. What do you call that? Is gratitude really enough? Isn't that, isn't that what love does? Love is never really love until it's learned to sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's been said that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. <coughs> these people were willing, these men were willing to give their lives if necessary to express their love and their gratitude to their king. Oh, I can hear the conversation as they sat around that night and they said, Men, we are going, we are going to Beth Shem. And someone said, well, you know, I, I don't know, you know, it's, uh, it's late and I've had a long day. Well, don't worry about it. We need to go to Bethshem. Yeah, well, you know, Saul, he wasn't living for the Lord, but he's still our king. But he wasn't right with God. He did a lot of really dumb things. Yeah, I know that, but he's still our king. Now, there's another king. His name is Jesus. And he didn't give his life for an eye. He gave his life so we could have life. I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And not just an abundant life with real meaning, purpose and direction down here on planet whatever we're going to get called next. I mean, I notice they're changing names everywhere. I guess we'll have to change the name of Earth. We may as well. Probably, well, it used to belong to somebody else before we were all here, you know, billions of years ago. Maybe we will maybe we'll, uh, put a load of waffle. For the love of Christ constraineth us, 2 Corinthians 5 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Now let me ask you, if you know Jesus Christ, your Saviour, are you grateful? Are you truly thankful for what God and his son have done for you and I. The psalmist posed the question in Psalm 116. He said, what shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? He said, when I look at all that God has done for me, what should I do in return? You know what his response was? I will take the cup of salvation and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vow. So in other words, I'm going to get saved. I am so thankful for all that God's Son and God the Father have done for mis miserable, sinful, godless wretch like me. Just a grubby old fornicated, drunken, foul-mouthed hoon. And all that God did in that he loved me and gave his Son for my sins. 
I don't just want to give him my sin to cleanse and forgive. I want to give him my heart. I want to give him my life. I want to give him my all. Do you? There seems to be a real missing element today of gallantry and gratitude among many of God's people. Tomorrow on Anzac Day, many places will be remembered around the world for the impact of the Anzacs, Australian New Zealand Army Corps. One of the most remembered recently seems to be the Battle of Kokoda. It was called Kokoda Track, then it was called the Kokoda Trail, and then they went back to the track again, and now we're back on the trail again. But, but there's a special, in Irosava, there's a special uh, memorial built there to honour the soldiers that went and fought there to keep the Japanese from getting to Port Moresby. And most of the men that went there to fight in those troops weren't even soldiers. Many of them were clerks. In the armed forces, yes. In the army, yes. In the navy, yes. In the air force, yes. But most of them had been working in Brisbane, Townsville and Cairns in clerical positions. And now here they were with some return servicemen returning to the battlefield for the old soldiers. But for the young guys, this was something totally different. And this was a different battlefield than they would face anywhere else to go up and down mountainsides, mudslides, battle with malaria, dysentery and everything else that went with it. Hugely outnumbered by the aggressive forces keep, that just seem to keep on coming. The memorial says mateship, courage, endurance, Sacrifice. I think that ought to be one of the things, one of the elements of the Christian life. That when we know Jesus Christ as our Saviour, we have a bond with Christ. In John 15, he said, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. And there ought to be that, that matter of courage. But the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will never be flavour of the month on this planet. He's never going to be everybody's friend. Ever. On this side of his return. Now, during the millennium, he'll have lots of people that are going to be his friends outwardly, conform outwardly, but never inwardly. I read my Bible right at the end of that thousand year reign when the devil's loose from his prison goes out and deceives the multitudes again multitudes of people who have grown up in a world where the curse of sin has been reversed almost have lived in a virtual paradise will rebel against God and lift up the hand against Almighty God how is that possible? We'll see there's no gratitude. There's no oneness with God. And you, my friend, do not enjoy any oneness with God until you know Jesus Christ as your Saviour. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. 
So the mateship, the courage, the endurance. These are dark days to be a child of God. Do you realise here, was it February 25th, we finally became an executive order concerning our, our fabulous gender therapy legislation? And part of that legislation states that you are not allowed to pray for somebody who may be confused over their gender. What earthly authority, President, King, Premier or whatever, has the authority to forbid the people of God from praying and enshrine laws in our Westminster system, in our democracy, to say you cannot pray? We haven't seen that happen yet, have we? But sooner or later, somebody's got to be the first whipping boy. Somebody's got to become an example of this is how this works, folks. When I was in West Australia, when I was in Queensland at a youth camp, I said to the young people there that were going to be the cabin leaders, I said, now, the law in my state says if any one of these children comes and says, you know, Mr. Chris, I'm really confused. I don't know whether I'm Arthur or Martha. Can you pray for me? Legally, I have to say, well, no, sorry, I can't. But I'm one of them old-fashioned lawbreakers. <laughs> that's, that's one part of my sin nature that, that, that hasn't quite let go yet. We're going to need some real endurance and real courage if we're going to stand for Christ in these dark days. Because we have legislation pending federally and statewide that wants to shut down Christian schools, wants to shut down Christian churches, wants to get rid of the Bible, wants to get rid of any element, any knowledge, any revelation of God, anywhere they can. And the vast multitudes will say, yes, yes, we must do that, we must do that. Isn't that ironic? You look into the history in the New Testament and you see everywhere the gospel went, the immorality went out. Some of the most pagan cultures, like the Thessalonians and the Ephesians and the Corinthians with their temple of Aphrodite or Diana or their, their statues of gold and silver and wood and stone, when the gospel comes in and the Lord Jesus gets a hold of their heart, they turn to God from idols. In Acts chapter 19 it says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. See, the gospel changes people. God changes people. Christ changes people. And there's still an element that says, We will not have this man to reign over us. We haven't quite finished Psalm 2, have we? Where the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast away their cords, let us break their bands asunder. We will not have this man. And some pea brains seem to think that one day God the Father is going to rock up to the Son and say, listen, I'm really sorry, but it looks like they don't want you. So, Lord Jesus, we're going to go with plan Z. And uh, I feel really bad about this because, you know, everything's I, I kind of... But they just don't want you. 
And the numbers haven't. Nah. Not happening. See, I have one of these strange imaginations. You might have noticed that over the years, though. We sing when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Praise God. What about if after 10,000 years God said, right, that's it, you lot, out. You've had a good go, but you go join the rest of them. You deserved it anyway, and we'd all have to say amen to that. But he won't. Titus 1 tells us that God who cannot lie has promised eternal life. Jesus has promised they shall never perish. Never. But the world is against us. And sadly, there are many churches that are against Bible-believing Christianity. And we're going to require that mateship, that courage, that endurance and that sacrifice. The age-old question, what is it costing you to be a child of God? It costs you nothing to be a child of God. But it may well cost you to live as a child. To live as a child of God may cost you a lot. I know when my family sent me packing, when my father put me out of the house, I, I didn't, I didn't realise it would be 20 years before he eventually apologised. 20 years. It's a long time to wait for somebody to make something right. I mean, say, oh, that's not too bad. Hey, listen, if somebody stole your car, do you want it back in 20 years? If somebody bit your head off, do you want it back in 20 years? I don't think so. We are going to be learning in these coming days as we wait for our Saviour to return what it really means to love and forgive to love and to forgive and that will be sacrificial to love the unlovable I mean my wife's lovable Alan's lovable Don Edwina they're lovable I've known these people for years you must be in your 90s <laughs> it's been that long I mean, he was 60-something when I met him. That was 40 or and that put you know. Anyway, seemed a long time ago. But, yeah, the reality is there's a lot about us that ain't lovable. And yet God loves us. And he tells us that he's given us by his spirit in dwelling the children of God the unique ability to love the unlovable. By the love of God which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. There needs to be salvation, there needs to be sacrifice, there needs to be a willing heart to serve. To serve. Willingly, cheerfully, enduringly. These men risked their lives for a man who saved an eye. What do we render? What do we give to the one who saved us from hell? Gave us eternal life. Gave us forgiveness of all sins. Not just some, all sins. What does he get in return from us? 
And Anzac days, remember the sacrifices of others. Remember it was the Lord himself who told us, greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friends. These men were willing to lay down their lives for a dead king. A dead, wayward king. What do we lay down for a living, soon coming king? For our Lord and Master, what do we lay down for him? Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for our time in the word this morning. Thank you for the precious gift of life and the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of the courage, the zeal, the love and devotion of the men of Jabesh Gilead, the great affection and loyalty they felt toward King Saul, who saved them from being scarred. He didn't save them from hell, didn't even save them from death. Saved them from being disfigured. What ought we then to render for he who loved us and gave himself for us? For this one, Jesus Christ, your son, of whom the scripture says that he by the grace of God has tasted death for every man. And that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This one who was delivered for our offences and raised again for our justification. So your word tells us, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this wonderful provision of salvation and forgiveness. Thank you for this gift of life, eternal life. And for a life with meaning and purpose here on planet earth. We would ask you, Father, to teach us indeed to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. We might learn to walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Give us courage. Give us endurance. Give us strength. Thank you for godly friends that you surround our lives with to encourage our hands and strengthen us with their prayers and their words of encouragement and their love and, and care for us. Father, help us to learn what it really means to be sacrificial. Help us to endure hardness as good soldiers of the cross for the glory of the Lord Jesus. We'll be careful to thank and praise you for that which you do in our lives. Be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Don.